While they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does your master not pay taxes? He said, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And Peter said to him, Why, of strangers, of course. Jesus said to him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go to the sea, throw out a hook, take up the first fish that comes up. And when you've opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. At the same time came the disciples to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself, as this little child the same is greatest, in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck that he would drown in the depth of the sea. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell, and our conviction is that the Word of God has never changed and never will. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beginning in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus announces once again His coming death and resurrection. As Dr. Mitchell notes, the promise of a present kingdom begins to fade from the hopes of these disciples. Jesus speaks of the cross rather than the crown for the immediate future, and this distresses his disciples. In his conversation with Peter, Jesus shows his omniscience. He shows us this in two ways. The first is his question to Peter about the tax collectors. Then Jesus shows his omniscience by telling Peter where to find money to pay the tax. Dr. Mitchell exhorts us to obedience to the governing authorities, particularly with regards to paying taxes. And next, we are exhorted to meekness and humility as little children, qualities found in Jesus himself, who asks us to come to him. Here's Dr. Mitchell on the Unchanging Word Bible broadcast, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. Thank you. Good day, friends. Again, we come to you with studies in the book of Matthew. You know, it's a wonderful thing today that we have the opportunity, the freedom, and the blessing of studying God's Word together without anybody interfering with us. And we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 17. We've been discussing for a number of lessons now the first announcement of our Lord's death from chapter 16, 13 to 17, 21. 
We've come to the end of that division where our Lord gave to us uh, the revelation of his person, of his purpose, of his program, of his followers, and of his kingdom, uh, ending up with the faithlessness, or should I say the unbelief, of his, of his disciples. And the only way that unbelief is, is how to get rid of your unbelief is through reading the word of God, because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then our hearts are given over to him where the Lord comes in. Prayer brings God in, as I said, and fasting puts the flesh out. It's a question of self-emptiness, self-denial, so that the Lord's will and purpose may be accomplished in us. And we miss so much. I say it very frankly, we Christians miss so much of what God has for us because we're too much self-occupied with our own desires, our own purposes, our own wills, our own programs. In fact, our lives are so cluttered up, there are not enough hours in the day for us to do what we want to do. Isn't that true? It's true of all of us. And so little, very little time is given to the Savior. I just pray that every one of us, the youngest as well as the oldest, might in some way take the time to read the Word of God and be occupied with our Savior. I know what I'm talking about. Even though one may be in the gospel ministry, teaching the word of God day after day, it's so easy for one to become so filled with good things, even the service of the Lord, and yet miss that intimacy of fellowship with God in his word and in waiting upon God. And I just trust that you and I may know something of this life in Christ that shall glorify him and bring joy to your own heart and blessing to others. Now we come to chapter 17, starting at verse 22, and this runs right down through chapter 20, verse 16, for those of you taking notes. And here we have the second announcement of his death. You remember I was speaking of the fact of our Lord instructing his own disciples, which runs down through chapter 20, verse 34, where we have our Lord instructing his own. Having been spurned by the nation Israel, he now turns to instruct those who are following him, especially his 12 disciples. In fact, he's preparing them for the fact that he's going to leave them, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. And the first mention of our Lord, or the first announcement by our Lord of his suffering and death is found in chapter 16. Now we come to the second one, verse 22 and 23 of Matthew 17. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. You know, the hope of a glorious kingdom is beginning to die out in the hearts of these disciples. Now, when the Lord first mentioned this in chapter 16, in verse 22, Peter said, the Lord, Peter turned to the Lord and, and took him to one side and just rebuked the Lord. He just rebuked the Lord for having such an idea that he was going to suffer and die and be raised again from the dead. And I can just hear Peter saying to the Lord, Lord, I have just confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, why do you talk about suffering and death? You remember Peter was talking ignorantly. But I can understand Peter in that. 
So when the Lord first of all gave the announcement of his death, Peter rebuked him. He's opposed by satanic forces who used Peter to do this. Now, the second time he mentions it, they were exceeding sorry. I, I believe that the disciples now are coming to the place where they knew something was happening. And the Lord was beginning to discuss with them some very, very vital things. For example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Luke chapter 9, our Savior with Moses and Elias talked about his decease, his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And then you remember, our Lord speaks of the fact in verse 12, likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. This question of suffering was beyond them, that their Lord should suffer. So you have here the fact that these dear disciples were, were filled with sorrow. They, were, they began to realize something was happening. That they, the idea of a glorious kingdom was beginning to die out in their own hearts. And yet, may I say, it didn't die completely out. Because when you come to the book of Acts chapter 1, the disciples, now that the Lord has died and has been raised again from the dead, now what's the next thing on the program? Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You see, it never really got out of their hearts. They never fully understood the purpose and program of God, just like a lot of Christians today. And some have been Christians 20, 30, 40, 50 years and still do not understand something of the purpose and program of God for this age. But notice the Lord now is facing the cross. Israel has spurned him, turned its back on him. Now he looks toward the cross instead of the crown. He looks for suffering instead of glory. He's got to face a cross. As one version says, he steadfastly set his face, as it were, to go to Jerusalem. He knew, he knew what was ahead of him. Now, starting in at verse 24 and running right down to verse 27, in fact, the rest of this whole passage you have where our Lord begins to teach his disciples certain things. First of all, he teaches them responsibility to governments, verses 24 to 27, the end of the chapter. And you know, Christians have a responsibility to governments. And don't forget when the Lord said this, the Romans were putting pretty strong pressure upon the Jews. And the Jews were writhing under it. If our Lord had been a rebellious one, lawless one, he would have taken advantage of the situation to rebel against Rome. But listen to what it says. And when they were come to Capernaum, which was his hometown, they that received tribute money came to Peter, that is, those who collected taxes, came to Peter and said, Does your master not pay tribute? Doth not your master pay taxes? He said, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him or stopped him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children? Or of strangers? And Peter said to him, Why, of strangers, of course. Jesus said to him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go to the sea, throw out a hook, take up the first fish that comes up. And when you've opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money. Take it and give it to them 
that is to these tax gatherers, for me and for you. Now notice the Lord Jesus didn't manifest any sovereign power. He took his place as a man on earth in the human family under governments. I want you to mark this because today there's so much opposition to governments. I want to be very blunt and tell you if you're a Christian, the Word of God gives you no right to oppose governments, those that are already in government. Now, you may not want, you may not like the government, but you should be obedient to the government. Allow me to remind you of the book of Romans, chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul gives to us the relationship of a believer to governments, to human governments. Remember when Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was on the throne. If ever there was a brutal, vicious king, it was Nero. He had butchered so many of God's people. And yet the apostle Paul says, you pay your taxes. And remember that governments are ordained of God for the keeping down of evildoers. And if you don't pay your taxes and stand by the government, then you're going to be standing by evildoers. My friend, there are the facts. Our Lord here with his disciples, they're under the Roman governor, under the Roman government. And they were a captive people. And there's no question that, that the Jews of our Lord's day, the whole nation, in fact, hated the Romans. There's a strong undercurrent against the Romans. And yet when the tax gatherers came and said, does your teacher, does your master pay taxes? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, the Lord says, Peter, just a minute. Just a minute, Peter. Of whom do the kings of the earth take tribute, custom and tribute? Their own children or the strangers? Why, of course, the strangers, which was true, of course, in that day. All these captive kingdoms which uh, Rome had captured, they, they made them pay tribute. In other words, they paid, they paid the bill for the government of Rome. And Jesus said, well, lest they be offended, I'll tell you what you do. You go out and catch a fish. And the first fish you catch, open his mouth, and you'll find some money in there for you, for me, and for you. Our Lord bowed to the government of Rome as he walked among men. Just think of it, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of men, as he walked among men, bowed in subjection to a pagan, heathen government and paid his taxes. You know, one could say much about this, but I'm not going to do it except to say that today we see a growing lawlessness and sometimes some of these lawless things are being uh, fostered by those who are preachers, teachers. Supposedly, they should be supposedly Christians and they're opposing our government. Now, you've got the opportunity at the polls if you don't like the government to make a change, but as long as the government is in force, we ought to obey the government. We ought to pay our taxes. You may grind under them, but we're to pay them, and I would suggest you do it joyfully. Remember, you're Christians. You're Christians. And if our Lord did this, who had all the power in the world, in the universe, nevertheless, he, he paid his taxes. He manifested subjection to the government who was over him. I want you to mark that. 
So you have it in verses 24 and 27, where he teaches responsibility to governments. Now, the next thing is in chapter 18. And in the first 14 verses, he teaches humility. At the same time came the disciples to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. Now, remember, he's instructing his disciples. It's good for you and good for me. And he said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, until ye be turned round and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck that he would drown in the depth of the sea. Now, I just, just stop here a minute. You know, I have, a, I have a little idea in the back of my mind that these disciples would like to have had the Lord answer them by saying, why, of course, you folks who follow me are going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, it's very, it's very human. No, these, these fellows were really human. But may I suggest to you that ambition, fleshly ambition, has no place neither in the kingdom of heaven nor in the kingdom of God. What is our Lord teaching? Humility. Unless you become as a little child. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, in the things of God? Then you become as a little child. And if you examine a child, oh, the simplicity of faith in a child. The simplicity of faith. <laughs> Some of these youngsters can just stare you in the eye and never crack a smile. They look, they look clean through you. And trust, if you want an illustration of real trust, you take a child. You take a child. Except you become as a little child. Humility, can I say it? Humility and meekness are the sign of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And, may I add, in the kingdom of God. You mean I shouldn't have any ambition at all? Just a minute. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I may read the revised on that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, which says, Wherefore, said Paul, being ambitious, we are ambitious, what for? To be pleasing to him, whether present or absent. You remember in verses 6 to 8 of that passage, he's been talking about the fact of being absent from the body is present with the Lord. Every Christian is either at home with the Lord and absent from the body, or present in the body and absent from the Lord. And he ends up by saying, wherefore we are ambitious, whether we are at home in the body or whether with the Lord to be ambitious, to be what? Found pleasing to him. And my friend, that's a tremendous ambition, to be found pleasing to God. Are you ambitious for that? Or are you ambitious for your own desires, for your own things? So I would say to you today, God grant that we Christians might be ambitious to be found pleasing to him. And how will it be manifested? In meekness and humility. 
I repeat again that humility and meekness is a sign of greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice as he goes on, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut him off and cast him from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed and halt rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If I, I offend thee, plug it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Take heed, therefore, that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Let me just stop here for a moment. This, he's still continuing this question of humility and greatness, and he adds this fact, be careful how you offend. Far better for you to be maimed in life than to offend any of these little ones. Now you say, well, he's talking about Christians. I know it says, one who shall, those who believe on me, who have received to be who have accepted me, who have put their trust in me. I recognize that. Sometimes we say, well, that has to do with Christians. Be careful how you deal with Christians. Well, let's take the word of it. He's talking about little children. And meekness, humility will keep you, if it's genuine, from offending people. Far better for you to enjoy life than to be crippled because of some personal desires and wants, where you overrule and ride roughshod over others to attain to get what you want. No, humility, meekness are the signs of greatness. Not performing miracles, not having all the gifts of the Spirit, not being a great preacher or teacher. Humility and meekness are signs of greatness in the kingdom of God. And you remember Jesus said, learn one thing of me, I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest to your soul. May we take heed then to obey the scripture and do what he wants us to do, even today. Hear him knocking, hear him pleading, for he loves you, my friend. Jesus loves you, my friend, today. Jesus came to earth by a humble birth, and he died to pay man's loves you, my friend. He died and rose that we might be.
Jesus stands there without fanfare, for he loves you, my friend. Jesus loves you, my friend, right now. Christ who lived with men said, be born again. And before him you must bow. Don't be almost, put him foremost, for he loves you, my friend. He died and rose that we might be. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study today. Write to us with your comments and your prayer requests to the Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Radio Broadcast. Bye,